The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm your host and also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the school. And today I have with me in the studio Dr. Sean Brower. Sean, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's an honor to be with you today. Sean Brower is the head of the upper school and varsity men's soccer coach at Briarwood Christian School in Birmingham, Alabama, where he resides with his wife. He has earned five state championships and three National Coach of the Year awards, but more importantly, he and his wife are blessed with three sons. He's the author of We Became Men, The Journey into Manhood, and The Huddle, Becoming a Champion for Life. And he joins me today by Zoom to discuss his latest book, Stand Two, Finding Masculine Courage in a Stand Down World, published this year by Westbow Press, a division of Thomas Nelson and Zondervan. Dr. Harry Reeder, senior pastor at Briarwood, says this about the book, men who would stand up for Christ and stand firm in Christ would benefit from being saturated in Dr. Brower's volume, Stand Two, a weighty yet engaging exposition of Christ-exalting biblical masculinity and joy and profit. And our listeners uh, might be surprised to hear that I think this is maybe the first time we've ever uh, interviewed uh, someone who coaches in a competitive environment. I, I don't usually ask that of most of the authors that are on here, but this book um, was well worth our time and attention, and, and it draws heavily from Dr. Brower's experience as a coach as well in terms of illustrations and anecdotes and helping young men grow into, uh, into a biblical manhood. Uh, Sean, the book's subtitle will tip readers off to what it is this book is about. But more specifically, what problem are you seeking to address? Obviously, the, the title, Stand To, and then the subtitle, Finding Masculine Courage and Stand Down World. And maybe even to address that title to begin, we've all heard of Stand Down. But this whole idea of Stand To, which is a military term often used in, say, a uh, World War II, you would you would hear this command, and and for men it was to be alert, awake, ready um, on the trench fire step, rifle loaded, uh, well before dawn, ready for whatever action is coming at us, and uh, and so in a in a the world that we live in, there's a lot that's coming at us as as men, as um, as families, and in, in our community, and. And so it's to be not caught catnapping, but rather alert, awake, ready to give a defense, ready to, to stand up for what we believe. And, uh, and, to, uh, and it, there's a difference between uh, knowing what you believe and being able to stand, uh, stand um, behind and then to, to speak out and finding courage. And, uh, and so... Um, we specifically think of, to, to answer your question, what problems you're seeking to address. Um, it's actually a chapter that I've dedicated to, uh, to uh, specifically convictional courage um, that is founded in biblical. There, there's a difference between having a biblical conviction and just having a conviction. Like, uh, you know, Hitler had a, had a strong conviction. It was a bad one. But... Um, for us as Christians, we have God's word that we that we have as a foundation that we can uh, stand on 
and be able to respond with authority. And, uh, you know, I think it was St. Augustine who said, um, let the truth out and it will defend itself. And, uh, and so too often, you know, in a, in a, in a narcissistic, um, secular humanistic world, we're having to defend our own positions and defend um, whatever it is that we think in that moment. Um, that's kind of hard. Um, for us, we have God's word that we can stand on. And yet even great men in the church um, have trouble finding, finding the courage to do that. And, and we have to be courageous because if we're not speaking out as Christians, there, there's a lot of other loud voices doing that. Absolutely. And and who is your target audience then? Is it men generally? Is it young men specifically? Uh, you know, who are you writing to? It really is men. Uh, can be young men, specifically men. My first book, uh, We Became Men, The Journey into Manhood, that really spun out of um, uh, I was leading uh, retreats specifically with senior guys. And I really came away from after I've been doing that number of years at, that our young men, I'm talking 17, 18, 19 years old, they don't really understand what it means to be a man. And, uh, and so, uh, so that now that was really was, I guess, 10 years ago that wrote that. So that generation that I was writing to, they're now, uh, they're grown, many married. And, um, and, and, uh, and my hope is that they are uh, good churchmen, citizens, and, and yet, uh, we don't need them on the sidelines, but more than ever, speaking out on behalf of the church, their families. And uh, so um, so really young men, men, um, I don't know, truth, truth, truth cuts across all all ages. So <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> when right. I'm using God's word, it applies to everyone. That's exactly right. And the end result of reading and applying this book is is really to encourage men to be men as God in his word defines that, as well as to encourage them to stand up and to stand to in the sense that, you know, you're illustrating out of our military parlance. I appreciate all that. Now, whenever we consider the problems of our surrounding culture, we can fall into a trap and become overly reactive in an unhealthy way. And I, th I think our listeners know exactly what I'm talking about. Like when you're obsessing about the madness all around us, and even and even the madness within us, you become introspective. But you're calling your readers not to be reactive or unhealthily self-obsessed or, or whatever, but to be proactively caught up into a far grander narrative known as God's redemptive story. In fact, that's a, that's a quote from your book, Caught Up, and so on. Where does that begin practically? Where do we start? Our founding or grounding of this whole idea, we have to go back to the garden. When God tells Adam, you're to be a dominion bearer. Uh, you are to um, uh, subdue the earth uh, and uh, to take take control. Now, too often we look at, we, we can use that word control and there's a, a shadow side of that. And, and just like to be a dominion bearer, we can dominate. And that's a, obviously the shadow side. But um, uh, when when we consider that uh, history is not just cyclical, um, history is that there is a linear progression. There's creation, fall, redemption. God doesn't need us; He chooses to use us. And so, where does that begin? That begins one relationship at a time. Uh, uh, whether it's in our family, in our workplace, 
And, uh, uh, but um, I think directly to answer your question, it begins our own heart. You know, we have to begin the, 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 there are, there are two, two warriors, if you will, within, and uh, Paul spoke about this all the time. And it's the, uh, the flesh who's a traitor. <laughs> and if we're in Christ, the spirit, and they're at war. And if there's not a war, if there's not a, a war waging, uh, that's probably not a very good sign. It's that for maybe a time that uh, the devil's gotten a foothold. And, uh, and so this whole, this whole, uh, I, I do what I don't want to do. And I don't do what I should do. I know to do. And so that's a every day, I think it's the call of uh, Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, first thing he's, he's pretty much his job description. The first thing is deny yourself. And, uh, and so to get our eyes off ourselves and, and have then an outward, upward perspective attitude of how do I live this very next moment in a way that would be God honoring that? What does it look like to honor the king, the warrior king? And, um, and so it begins with us and then having the courage to share that to uh, our sphere of influence, whatever that looks like. As part of that, you open this up in the book, the starting point is, is not looking in, but looking up. And then only then after getting that orientation set right, then we can look in and examine ourselves in order to address the issues that are, that are rolling around in our own hearts. And, and that process of self-examination cultivates humility. And in that, you give us some guidance in the book. What questions should we be asking ourselves after we've turned our eyes to Christ and his goodness and his glory and that grand narrative, and we've been brought into it, then we turn to ourselves and say, okay, what do I do with this? What questions should we be asking ourselves? Yeah, there's, you know, there, there's, there's not just what we do. It's, it's how we do what we do. And so we really have to get to, like, we can do the, the right things, if you will, but our, but our, our motives, the intentions of our hearts, um, the desired outcomes for that bring either self-glorification, um, those things that uh, maybe initially look might look good on the, the outside. You know, at the end of the day, we put our head on a pillow and there's, there's uh, ourself and the Lord and we can't fool either one. And, uh, and so really, again, that, that's again going back to that, uh, that battle within that, um, that understanding uh, what's really below the surface and, uh, and then uh, is what I'm doing to bring me glory or if, if, uh, if is our chief end to glorify ourselves or to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, as we know the Westminster Confession, the, the Shorter Catechism tells us to do, and uh, and so those are those are hard. We don't like, you know, particularly uh, maybe women are a little bit better at this. Uh, men, we don't do great with self reflection, with taking time to to think and to ponder. Um, we like to attack a problem and just just get it done, but not actually stepping back. And why did I just do what I did? So I think those are, um, those are things that if we slow down, we'll, we'll have a, and, and ask some of those things have a better idea of, of, uh, really what might even be the idols of our hearts. Yeah. yeah, We have to tear down. You give this evaluative instrument on pages 17 and 18 that are 
it's just, it's really useful. It was convincing to me as I, as I read through it and asked myself, you know, how would I rate myself one to five on these 10 metrics? And, and, and here they are and, and buckle up listeners. Cause this is, this is going to be convicting to you too. Number one, I actively listen and choose to speak less. How are you going to rate yourself on that? Two, I often ask insightful questions of others. Three, regularly exhibit a teachable spirit, readily admit and confess when wrong, accept insults and injuries with grace do not seek to be admired and loved. I ask others of blind spots in my life. I deflect credit and praise to God and others. I do not compare myself to others. I give permission for others to disagree with me. You know, a lot of times when I read a book like this and I come across, you know, a rundown of things, it's like, you know, I remember in, in the book we used when my wife and I went through pre-marriage counseling, it's like, oh yeah, I'm pretty good on this stuff. But I think on every single one of these things, I'd have to give myself uh, what I would consider to be a below adequate score. And, and, it, well, and it made me that want- two of us. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> and, and it made me, it made me really want to, to consider, you know, what's going on, Zach, you know, are you, are you really living in independence on the Lord as a, as a man marked not only by, you know, outward courage and boldness and, and, and go get them, uh, kind of mentality. Those are all good things, but also by humility and grace in my life and Christ likeness in, in those ways. Um, let's see, you actually, in the book, you talk a lot about courage and recklessness and you, and you pit these two things against each other. And so I wanted to ask you uh, to share with the listeners, what is the difference between courage and recklessness? And, and could you give a, a quick illustration of each of those or even just together? To, to have courage is, is not the absence of fear, but it's in the face of fear. So, uh, so oftentimes, whether you're being reckless or courageous, um, they, uh, they both require you to respond, even though there may be a fear factor there. Um, I think reckless, uh, a, a, a synonym might just be stupidity. Uh, you know, I, I can, uh, charge violently into battle and die quickly, right? Like I can do something that, um, that is, uh, really doesn't have a transcendent cause to it that, um, you know, might, might end up on a, on a bloopers or a funny, you know, somebody's funny clip, but it really, um, doesn't have much value to it. Courageous. I believe that there is something that is, uh, a high character uh, value that there's a there's a result on the backside that is going to benefit uh, someone for the better and um, and you know I, working in a school I see uh, I see those opportunities all over the place working with uh, young people um, it, it it may be a courageous act may simply be. Um, when a student is being made fun of by another to simply say, actually, that's not appropriate. You shouldn't be speaking to her that way. You need to, uh, she, she has dignity and worth and value, and that's not appropriate. Sounds like a simple thing, but, um, and, and it's, it's simply willing to, to, to die to self. Like, I don't care. I'm going to do the right thing. Um, and, and it's, there's founded, my, my actions are founded in some moral standard that is going to benefit someone. And I don't care what necessarily the response is. It's just the right thing to do. And, um, so, uh, you know, I see, I see those, those things happen all the time, you know, in school, sometimes, a lot of times opportunities missed, to be honest. And, um, 
but uh, I do see see courageous acts by by kids and uh, look forward to what does that practically play out as they they go from here with you know in, into the community society so yeah that's a great illustration I mean it takes a lot of courage to call out a peer especially in high school because what what's the risk there the risk is you're going to be seen as a you know goody goody do-gooder somebody who's you know putting himself out there you know I, I mean there's there's even times you might reprimand somebody for doing something wrong and then somebody else says you know who do you think you are you think you're you know all high and mighty over there mm. doing the right thing and you, you know you incur yeah. those risks but as you said yeah. uh the courageous person the young man or woman in that context um calculates those risks and say this is the right thing this is what i got to do and and i can do it with grace i can do it with tenderness i don't have to be a jerk but i got to do this um what does it mean to show yourself to be a man or to become more masculine. This is obviously a hot button topic now in our culture. You know, people, commentators saying we have a lost generation of boys and men addicted to video games and pornography and, and whatever other, you know, vain pursuits and sinful pursuits are out there. And then also you have a whole group of people who are women now seeking to become men in some weird, deviant, perverted sense. So, so what does it mean to show yourself to be a man? Yeah, you're, you're right. This is a, this is a hard topic to even talk about masculinity because immediately um, there's a, a large component of society that will quickly run to, Oh, men, the pursuit of masculinity. It's just men are toxic, too much testosterone, too much bravado, um, and, and, and that, again, that's a shadow side of the, the fall where we're told to be a, a dominion bearer. You know, when I was reading, I think it's first Corinthians 16, 13 and 14, when I, you know, oftentimes we hear this, you know, um, uh, sometimes it's dads or coaches, teachers say, man up, but like, what does that really mean? You know, and 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 I think for most boys or, or young men, it's just like, well, try harder, suck it up, you know, get it done. And um, and there's a couple places I think in Scripture that it, it becomes, I think, abundantly clear of what does it really mean to be a, be a man. And in Corinthians, Paul Paul he he says, listen, be watchful. So what is you know? There's what are we watching for? Well, we know Peter, the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking who may devour. Like you're you're going to be under attack. Attack is coming. So so be on guard and uh, and then stand firm in the faith because there's a lot that want to tear it down. And uh, and so if you're you're then we have the, um, you know, the armor of God to put on. But then right in the middle of this, it says act like a man. So you get you get in front of it. Be watchful. Attacks are coming. Stand firm. Um, you know, it's interesting that there's, uh, what, 200 and I think 68 uh, biographies in Scripture, and only 20% of them actually uh, have success stories where they have stood. Um, and uh, and then we, and so then you get act like a man, and there's two things that follow. Be strong. Okay, that sounds like a man, right? But then there's this, it, it ends with, and then do everything in love. And then, so those who are like, ah, toxic masculinity, wait a minute, do everything in love. Like, that's a game changer. You just threw that in. <laughs> and, and so then if we look at who's the ultimate example of what it means to be a man. Well, that's Christ. And what, what did he do? He, he 
humbled himself and became obedient unto death, death on a cross. And so, um, you know, when, when we look at what's true masculinity, what, well, it's, it's Christ doing what he did for his bride, laid down his life. And so, and he gives that example of how we ought to treat our wives. It's a beautiful picture of how literally boys in our hallway should treat girls. And, um, so, you know, I think that's, that's the, the, the picture of, um, uh, and that's why going back to the, you know, the first chapter that you had alluded to, we had actually, I had actually finished this book and the first chapter was actually the last chapter that we wrote <laughs> because my son and I were talking about we're like, wait a minute, we have to start this. We have to start with humility. We have to look, be willing to look at the, the lift the hood, proverbial hood look at what's inside, what's wrong with my engine, so to speak, before we can start looking at anything else. And, uh, and so I think for us to, to be a man, it's, it's humility. It's a willingness to, to die to self, to, to act courageously in love. And, uh, and then from that point, we can, can look outward, but it's got to start within. I got another big question for you, kind of big bringing heady concepts down into the concrete realities like you just did uh, with what does it mean to be a man? What's the relationship between the need to stand to and the need to stand up, stand out, and be an all-in kind of guy? Um, or to put it another way, what's the relationship between you know the stand to mentality and maybe what's popularly known as the alpha male mentality or or the you know the high d like directive kind of personality who's gonna get out there and do what you said earlier get things done and throw you know everything into a project to be the best that it could possibly be what what, what a relationship between these two kind of postures or mentalities anytime you're in a you're in a conversation this happens with with having with with kids co-workers you can be right on point and completely wrong on presentation you can, you can, if you will, win the war and lose the battle. And so how we go about this. And, and so when we, you know, when you think about how do I do what I do, it has to be, number one, uh, we got to be speaking with truth, have the conviction to then respond with that truth. You know, I think of... Um, you know, the boldness of, of Peter and John and um, and and they're probably late teens. And and yet uh, after they got done talking, what was clear, people said, you know, it's written, it's clear that these men had been with Jesus. And and when we're speaking, when we're leading, when we're standing to whatever it may be, can people say that in a response, it's clear they've been with Jesus. Jesus spoke convictionally uh, with great boldness and confidence because he was speaking truth, but he, but he didn't make a mess and running over people. And, um, and so I think that's a, that's a, a challenge for us um, with all the rhetoric that's going on. Sometimes we just want to be so right, we don't really care what the end result is. And uh, and there's a lot of causes that we're we're responding, reacting to, and if we're not careful, we completely lose our voice. And that's where that important part of do everything we do should be done in love. 
Sean, I see a lot of guys obsess over validation and money. They want to be high performers. They want big paychecks. They want gleaming accolades. I mean, you know how it is as an athlete, but we can get these things in all kinds of pursuits. You want the trophy case to be full and you want people to know it. You want to see it. Um, but what resources are more valuable than uh, high performance, big paychecks and gleaming accolades? In particular, where does a good reputation fit into the stand to picture and a good conscience for that matter. You know, and this would, you know, there's a, a, a part of, of this where I talk about writing one's creed, uh, really getting down to um, gut level. Who am I? Why am I here? Uh, why do I do what I do? What value do I bring? Where am I going? And so once you start really wrestling with all those kind of heart level questions, it really directs uh, what's important in life. And, you know, as I started working through and, and, and writing, you know, my, my personal creed, I, I've got two main things that I want to see happen in life. And it's, it's that my three sons know Jesus, are walking faithfully with him, and that someday, should the Lord allow, that has perpetuated to their children's children. And this idea of covenant succession has continued. And then secondarily, that uh, my life might be an example of what it means to be a Christ follower that would be attractive and winsome to where others might also want to be a Christ follower. That's all I want in life. And, uh, and so uh, once, once all that comes into, into plain view, when we really realize that the only thing that matters is anything that's of eternal significance, which is all I've just spoken of right there. The rest of it, we all leave it behind. <laughs> he who dies with the most toys still dies, right? So, um, uh, so as priorities come into to view and we, we look at uh, as people not as obstacles uh, or, or, or vehicles, uh, to our agenda, but rather souls to win for Christ that, uh, and, and even those that we might disagree with or have conflict with that, like, how can we put that to rest? Because if they're a believer, we're going to be spending eternity together. So let's get over our bad selves and, and move on with it. Um, or, or, or non-believers to pursue them, uh, in hopes that, um, the Lord may use us to, uh, to draw them to himself. You know, Sean, I've been married for 11 years, and 11 years ago, my wife and I got married in the middle of college. We had nothing to our names, but shortly after getting married, I sat down with, um, with an alumnus of a college ministry with which I was involved, and he was in uh, financial advising, insurance, you know, all, all that kind of stuff, and he really took his vocation seriously, and I had nothing. I couldn't buy anything. I couldn't buy any products, but he sat down with me, met with me, and walked me through what it means to think about the future and about finishing and about, you know, particularly providing for my wife, not necessarily just in retirement, but after I die, because most women live longer than their husbands. And that's just the fact of the matter is. Um, and so this is something that's been a recurring theme on my mind, especially as we've had children, our family's grown, as the Lord has blessed us with more resources to be able to think a bit more constructively about the future. And you touch on this in your book, even for a young guy audience or mid-20s, early 30s audience like myself, 
What does it look like to finish strong? I use uh, Ray Bohm's life and, and here are all the things that he did really poorly. And so if you flip those, um, you know, a life where, number one, you are following God's word. You can't like if that's your guide and daily and regularly in God's word. Um, the the second is is really considering um, the the legacy that we've received, whether it's good or bad. So kind of do an inventory. If I had a you know, I'm a, I'm a son of a pastor and have been given a rich legacy. Uh, now that's mine to either continue or to not. And, uh, and so each of us, I think have to wrestle with, what am I going to keep? What am I going to, to let go of? Um, I think the third thing is, um, looking for mentors, role models that will give wise counsel, not those who, who is it that, you know, my, one of my, uh, former pastor, Joe Novenson on at look at mountain press, he would regularly tell his, his elders, my heart is an open hunting ground far away. Do we, do you have men that are willing to say, um, I see something that needs to be shot down and you're willing to hear it, receive it and, and change, or you're just looking for yes men. And then to be considering your own legacy, there's going to be a point that, that we, we all pass. And, uh, you know, as one, one pastor said, you know, at your funeral, don't make me lie about you. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, what are those things that, you know, what's on your tombstone? What are those things that you want your children to remember that, and that is of a lasting significant value. And, um, and so I think, you know, those, those things put eternity into perspective, um, which is a challenge because so much of, you know, as men, it's, uh, it's work and strive and drive and that next paycheck, the next advancement, the bigger house, the nicer car. And that's the American, not dream, but lie that once you have all these things, but you know, um, when is, when is ever enough, you know, it's, we, we strive for the almighty dollar, but, uh, unfortunately it does not bring lasting fulfillment or, um, certainly anything returnal value. You know, going back to something we hit on earlier, you talk about going, being caught up into a far grander narrative known as God's redemptive story. And when I think of what it looks like to finish strong, I think of, okay, where does the narrative arc of my, my life end? And how does that fit into God's, uh, to God's redemptive story? You know, the, the little tiny part we play, the little tiny role we have in light of the magnificence of Christ. And yet, you think back on church history, you think of unlikely characters who had such amazing effects on the church. Um, you know, you read about William Wilberforce, who not only had an amazing effect on just Christians thinking through social issues, but also on his culture as a statesman, but the dude was just racked with disease. He was unpopular. He was ridiculed. He had, you know, chronic pain and yet the Lord used him mightily. And, you know, we could, we could go on forever and name different folks. So you wonder, okay, how's God going to use Sean Brower? How's God going to use Zach Groff? How's God going to use, you know, fill in the blank here 
with your name and and what does that look like? Uh, my last question for you is a basic one. It's one I ask all, all the authors I interview. Are you working on any other writing projects right now? Anything on the horizon? You know, I'm not. This is a conversation my wife and I had. I have three sons. My oldest is a senior, and I actually just told him this uh, just a week ago. I said, my number one uh, thing this entire year is you. <laughs> and I won't be sidetracked by any other uh, assignment. Um, I, I, I cannot, and I'm, I, I feel young. I, I can't believe that I'm going to be an empty nester in a year. I'm 50, but I don't, don't 50 sounds old, but um, so I'm just kind of shocked that I'm going to be an empty nester. And so I'm clinging to every bit of this last year with my now youngest son. My oldest is getting married in a month and a half. And, and, uh, and so I'm going to put any writing on, on hold and, uh, and just try to be a good dad. That's great. Well, Sean, I've really enjoyed our time together. Thank you for uh, taking um, taking about 40 minutes out of your busy schedule to, to speak with me about this book. And again, it's Stand 2, Finding Masculine Courage in a Stand Down World. It's published by Westbow Press. You can get it uh, wherever books are sold. I, I heartily recommend it to you. It's an accessible read, but a very fruitful one and a much uh, much needed message in our culture today, which which seeks to emasculate boys and downplay the dignity and nobility of being masculine in, in the sense that God calls us to be masculine. Thank you again, Sean. Yeah, thank you, Zach. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed my time with you. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu. donate For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.